is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, avocados hopefully heading to India and lamb prices. Well, they're falling and sale yard yardings are increasing, but international demand is strong and supermarket prices will probably stay very high. Um, volumes are higher. We've got higher slaughter. Um, in, and this is in Victoria. If you look over the last four weeks or so, slaughter volumes are up by about 17%, um, but then yardings are up about 22% as of last week, you know, as in higher than this time last year. So it looks to me as though in the lamb space at least that demand's still strong overseas, but um, we're seeing higher volumes than we've seen in the last few years. So that's kind of counteracting that strong demand and it's, it's partially why we're seeing some of these prices slip a little bit. You might want to talk about uh, what you're seeing in the sale yards. Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four. Some quite big price falls we've seen, and we'll have uh, more market information shortly on the program. But uh, first up today to bees, because nine new viral mite infestations have been confirmed on the central coast and in the Hunter regions by New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. This will see the red eradication zones in those areas expanded and takes the total number of infestations to 131 since the state's varroa mite outbreak was confirmed in June last year. But Chris Anderson, varroa mite response coordinator with New South Wales DPI, says the latest outbreaks show very low numbers of mites, does not mean eradication cannot still be achieved and doesn't warrant a change in approach. We have discovered... Uh, through the completion of our purple zone surveillance in that area, a few additional cases. Um, so we've actually had nine new IPs um, that we've declared, but they're not all on, on the central coast. Some of them are uh, very close to red zones in the Hunter region as well, which is what we would expect. The IPs that we discovered um, on the southern part of the central coast um, are also fairly close into the existing red zones there, um, and they have very very low numbers of mites in, in recreational beehives, so maybe one mite or two mites on a mat, um, and that's telling us that most likely that's a very, very recent uh, infestation in those hives. So you don't think this is a cause for alarm, or it is? Uh, not at this stage. It's, it's still part of the course. We expected to find uh, more IPs, and the good news out of this is that we're not finding thousands of mites or hundreds of mites in these uh, hives. As, as I said, we're using a technique that samples the entire hive um, as opposed to the sugar shaking or the alcohol washing that people might be familiar with, which only samples a few hundred bees. Um, and so we're sampling all of the adult bees in the hive and only finding a couple of mites. If we were finding hundreds or thousands of mites in these hives, then we would be in trouble, but that's not the case. So is it as steady as she goes with the policy now or uh, is it time for a rethink? Yes, yeah, so the, uh, what's known as the Consultative Committee on Emergency Plant Pests, which we refer to as the CCEPP, which is the National Committee of all the affected industries, the heads of their industries um, and the jurisdictional governments and Commonwealth government have all um, looked at this information and agree that it continues to be uh, technically feasible to eradicate. There's no need for the federal government to step in or make announcements to our overseas uh, customers or things like that, that we've actually got Varroa now in Australia and, and we can't eradicate it? Uh, we're not at that stage yet, no. 
And I understand federal government has increased the amount of funding, their share of the funding to to help out. Uh, How much is that and when did that happen? So I believe what you're referring to is what's called the recategorization. Um, Mm. So this relates to uh, what's known as the Emergency Plant Pest Response Deed, which is a a deed that's signed between all the affected industries and government parties. Uh, And there was a decision that was made this month to change the categorization for Varroa from a 50-50 categorisation, which is half paid by industry and half paid by government, to an 80-20. So it's 80% paid by government, the response, uh, and 20% by industry. And that's due to the the impact that this pest is likely to have if it is to um, go beyond our ability to eradicate uh, on our ability to pollinate crops right across the continent. So is there still movement of hives across borders or, or that's, you know, what's the situation there in terms of pollination, New South Wales, Victoria or into Queensland or South Australia? Yeah, at the, at the present moment, there I believe there is a temporary standstill on the issuing of permits, but there has been a permit system which recently was approved, um, which we didn't have before, uh, to get hives moving back across um, into Queensland and Victoria and other states, uh, and that was this is from areas in New South Wales that are considered safe. That's correct. Yeah, so that's um, that was based on the, the work that's been done by the response um, in terms of surveillance in those areas, as well as self testing by beekeepers. And that's not going to change. Uh, not at this stage. We are working with Queensland and Victoria uh, to provide them with some additional information, um, particularly around the, the detections that occurred in Taree. Um, to give them confidence to start issuing those permits again. And does it set back the eradication process or are you still on track? Uh, at this point in time, we're still on track. We, we have some uh, strategies that uh, are around the removal of wild, I was going to call them feral, but wild bees. So removing all of the um, managed hives and then removing the wild bee population to remove the varroa mite, that's the strategy. We continue to implement that strategy and we continue to measure whether it is effective, um, and it will take us a bit more time to determine uh, which direction we go in, but at the moment we're still gathering that data. Chris Anderson is a varroa mite response coordinator for New South Wales DPI. Now, those nine new varroa mite infestations have been discovered at Glen William, Brookfield, Loxford, Sawyer's Gully in the Lower Hunter and uh, Yarramalong, Woi uh, Woi, Kooloowong and Umina Beach and Horsefield Bay on the central coast. Those red eradication zones we're talking about there in all of those areas will be expanded. The DPI says it will start euthanizing all managed beehives and equipment on the infested premises with the help of the owners. Barbara Elkins from the Central Coast Amateurs Beekeepers sadly knows what it's like to have her beloved bees destroyed. She spoke about what these latest developments mean for the community, for the beekeeping community, with Scott Levi. Oh, well, they've lost... Most of them have lost everything again. So they had, you know, there was a few people who had a a few little beehives here and there on the edges, so they're all gone again. And we were using them, you know, to make our apri or, you know, help someone else, you know, who hasn't got any again, but they're all gone. So, and lots of people I've mentored, you know, that are really sad, you know, that we've, we, you know, we had a great relationship for years and years. They cut, the bees came from my hives, you know, or we, I caught a swarm for them and gave it to them. So millions of human hours have gone into this now. And um, it's just, you know, it's very disappointed. We, we, we hope, you know, that we have got it, but it's hard to. 
it's hard to to uh, yeah. I, uh, I you can hear me. I can hardly talk. No, just yeah. Weak. Just terrible. The eradication zone is almost the entire Central Coast. What does that yeah. mean for the local industry? Well, we haven't got it. We've got nothing. We've got nothing. There's no, you know, there's no beehives at all on the coast. There's almost none at all. So all the little, you know, people who had maybe a hundred, they've lost all those. But people who had two or three, they're all in all the backyards. They're gone. So. Where, you know, as they put out all the poison traps and things, all the ones that are feral, which there are quite a few still, around in gum trees and probably in people's sheds that they don't even know, that they'll all go too because we've got to poison all of them. We've got to get rid of all of them. Because can they bring happens. the poison back or can the other bees bring the poison back to... to the po- um, they can ice? bring the poison back, yeah. When they put out the the bait stations, they can... They can uh, take it back there. They put out bait stations just with stickies in it, you know, with just sticky uh, honeycomb in it, uh, and the bees come to it, the feral ones, and say, oh, here's something for yeah, us. Oh, party they, time. kill the hive. That's Central Coast beekeeper Barbara Elkin speaking there to Scott Levi about uh, the implications of those latest new infestations, uh, quite a number of them on the Central Coast and a couple more in the Hunter. Uh, but uh, not imp- impacting those uh, permits uh, that uh, people are hoping to move some bees into pollination areas uh, at this stage. So, uh, But they're still looking at that, still looking at the relaxation there, but uh, not expected to, according to DPI, impact on that. It's uh, coming up to a quarter past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, as we know, with weather issues and pricing, it's been uh, a rough number of years for avocado growers. Just last year, devastating images emerged of avocados being dumped and left to rot because of that glut in the market. Well, there's some hope on the horizon with the Australian government signing a deal giving Australian Hass avocado growers market access to India. With India posed to be the world's most populous country later on this year, the deal is hoped to end some oversupply issues here in Australia. John Tyus is the CEO of Avocados Australia, and he told Lucy Cooper that hopefully it's a game changer. Yeah, it's very exciting news for, for our industry. Um, we've been granted access for Hass Avocados to India. Um, so we need to do uh, 10 trial shipments before that's you know, in place and we can, um, we can trade. So we'll be keen over the next couple of months to get those trial shipments in place and then we'll be working through accrediting growers and packhouses around the country to um, be able to start exporting to India. How long has you know, this been under discussion? Is it related to the free trade agreement with India? No, they're really quite separate issues. The, the free trade was um, was uh, last year, I think, wasn't it? And um, uh, that was very good because you know we knew we were hoping, well, we're hoping to get access soon, and um, you know those tariff reductions will have a, a massive uh, impact as well on the trade. So by 2029, uh, the tariffs will be down to zero from from what's uh, been 30 percent. So that, that you know, having you can't you can't appreciate those uh those tariff reductions until you've so now uh, now having access to india along with the tariff reduction is just really a game changer i think growers will be very interested to hear you know what the um india market is seeking are we going to be sending a premium fruit over or is it run-of-the-mill supermarket heading over there 
Oh, well, even our run-of-the-mill supermarket product is, is pretty good um, compared to what you see around the world. Uh, but really, it's a, it's a market where we'll be targeting that top end. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people in India, nearly 1.5 billion people. Uh, if we can get 1% of people to buy Australian avocados, that's, you know, that's a market of 15 million people. So we'll definitely be targeting uh, that top end. But, um, you know, we, we produce a, a range of, of products in terms of sizes and, and quality. And, uh, you know, we'll be, our exporters will be exploring whatever opportunities there are in, in that region. With a potential glut, another one on the horizon. Is this going to help ease those dumping issues and, and really find a new home for them? Yeah, so our production in Australia has been rapidly increasing for the past few years and it'll continue to increase um, simply based on the number of trees that have been planted over the last five to ten years. Uh, and simply our Australian market won't be able to consume the volume of avocados uh, that are that are coming, and you know we've known that for a while, and that's what been why we've been working on trying to open these new markets. Traditionally, our main markets have been Singapore, Malaysia, and Hong Kong, um, and they've been good good markets for Australia. But you know they're relatively small compared with the likes of China or India, um, and so that's why we're so excited about about this new access because it's access to such a large market, um, an avocado market that is really in its infancy um, but set to expand rapidly uh, exponentially hopefully over the over the coming years so we think being such a large market that's why it'll have such an impact um, and uh, and yeah and we'll continue to pursue uh, other markets um, as hard as we as hard as we can um, because we do have lots of product on its way. I know a lot of growers always think of Japan as the next step in that premium market access, but they have really strict biosecurity protocols and it's, you know, we're yet to really tap into it. Where does avocados and biosecurity in India all interconnect together? Yeah, it's a similar thing. All countries have, have, you know, their pests of concern and and fruit fly is the one that um, causes us the, the, the most grief. So when when avocados are harvested, they're, they're harvested in their hard condition. So they actually don't ripen naturally on the tree. They have to be picked and then they'll ripen off the tree. And when they're in that condition, they're actually not susceptible to fruit fly. So the protocol's about um, you know making sure you're picking fruit that's that's hard and that it goes through the supply chain and it stays hard and then it's secured. Uh, either into a shipping container or or, or, or whatever that, that can exclude fruit fly and uh, and off it goes. So it's a relatively simple protocol um, and like I say, very, very workable and um, will allow a lot of growers and uh, packers uh, around the country to to get involved in uh, in trade with India. Avocados Australia CEO John Tyre speaking there with Lucy Cooper. It's 20 minutes past 12. Hello, I'm Rachel Mealy. Join me for The World Today. Australia's path to a nuclear-powered submarine fleet will take three decades and cost more than $360 billion. AUKUS is set to become one of Australia's biggest ever projects. It's sending a strong message to Beijing, but how are we going to achieve such a mammoth task and, more importantly, how are we going to pay for it? Comprehensive coverage of the new submarine deal coming up on The World Today. 
Well, the United Nations has named the Maloon Institute in New South Wales a demonstrator of sustainable, productive and profitable farming. But for more than a decade, its flagship research project to rehabilitate part of Maloon Creek has remained bogged down in bureaucratic red tape. With more than 20 landholders on board, there are calls for a national planning code to help return catchments to their natural pre-European function. Landline's Sean Murphy has this story. Lantasia is the biggest landholding in the catchment. It's a 4,600 hectare organic beef farm developed by one of the founding fathers of information technology in Australia. Richard Graham introduced Microsoft to Australia before buying his first property here 30 years ago. It wasn't until I came out here I realised that at the age of 40 that wait a second, there was something missing in my life. And when I came here, it was like the whole world opened up. Restoring the landscape has become a passion. Ponds were a solution for a 250 hectare erosion gully. It was so big you could have buried school buses in it. And what we needed to do, or what we wanted to do, was to stop this erosion from going another couple of kilometres. So it was this uh, idea of how would we stop that and then add to this ecological beauty that we wanted to create. In some ways, we're more an ecological enterprise with livestock and cattle paying our bills than we are the other way around. So the higher principle that we're working on here is ecological development and making the land more rich and robust. Richard has been a keen supporter of the Maloon Rehydration Initiative since its inception. But so far he's been unable to get planning approval for any of the 17 structures he wants to install. As he's tried to negotiate a deluge of planning approvals, the creek has deteriorated through record-breaking drought, flooding rains and the black summer bushfires. Much of Lantasia's 4,000 hectares of natural bushland hasn't fully recovered from the 2018 wildfires. Richard reckons rehydrating the landscape would have made it more resilient to the impacts of fire, but more importantly, it would have prevented thousands of tonnes of silt running down the creek and into Sydney's water catchment. And so if we'd been able to have those leaky weirs in at that time versus 15 years after we applied for them, catching the sediment would have been beneficial to Maloon Creek and it would have been beneficial to Sydney drinking catchment as well. You've been a successful businessman in another life. Have you been surprised at how much red tape there's been involved? Yeah, extraordinary. And my background career is software, and in software you have an idea today, and tonight you're, you're programming, making it happen, and tomorrow afternoon you're selling it. So uh, this process here where there are so many uh, steps in the way, it's extraordinary. And, and one of the things that seems to be holding all of those steps in place is fear. There's fear of change. There's fear of somebody's going to damage. There's, there's fear something's going to go wrong. Late last year, the New South Wales government changed planning laws so that rehydration work no longer requires development approval from local councils. But there's still a torrent of time-consuming and expensive approvals needed. Lawyer Matt Edgerton-Warburton, former Howard Government Minister Gary Nairn and environmental law specialist Jerry Bates are pushing for a national code to streamline planning approvals Australia-wide. At the moment it's really complicated. Got to get approvals from five or six state government departments, planning, environment, fisheries, water. And each of them are asking for 
expert reports before they give their consents. So it's costing us, you know, tens of thousands of dollars just in regulatory approvals and time before we even build the structure. Every state and territory has their different regulations, but most of them would say, OK, we need to protect biodiversity, we need to protect fisheries, we have to uh, remember Aboriginal and cultural heritage and so on. So, but all the regulations are different because all the laws are different. Uh, so what we want to do is generate a national approach which recognises the same sort of principles that we want to encourage and just comes up with a national scheme. And uh, if we can encourage the federal government to actually come to the party on this, it could be the biggest, uh, most important change to regeneration of the Australian landscape since Federation. It's that big, it's that important. I'm optimistic. Um, I think the will uh, is there between the states uh, and the federal government. It's not a, a partisan uh, matter. Uh, and it really addresses some of the issues that have been raised around the environment. As lawyer Matt Edgerton Warburton, uh, environmental law specialist Jerry Bates and former Howard Government Minister Gary Nairn ending that report from Sean Murphy. And you can see more on Landline, uh, the program Landline, on uh, ABC TV's iView. 26 past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. Well, the number of lambs going through the sale yards across the east coast is rising and the spike in supply is affecting the prices. We've seen prices fall quite a bit. Uh, that uh, sheep producers are getting. The volume of sheep is up more than 60% on the same time last year. And while exports are still pretty solid, there's uh, just too many sheep right now. Industry analyst with Episode 3, Matt Dalgleish, told Jane McNaughton that despite the falls, the prices are still on a par with long-term trends. In terms of demand, land market's pretty steady as she goes. If you look at the trend in exports for um, February, that, that is bang on the five-year trend pretty much. Um, the USA, who's our biggest market for lamb exports from Australia, is about 10% below their, their average kind of levels. But China's on trend and then all the other destinations are, are making up for the like, growth in those destinations in demand and making up for the the kind of gap that the USA are experiencing so far this year. So that means that you know, overall demand's on trend. But um, just looking at some of the, the volumes coming through the sale yard presently, um, volumes are higher. We've got higher slaughter, um, in, and this is in Victoria. If you look over the last four weeks or so, slaughter volumes are up by about 17%, um, but then yardings are up about 22% as of last week, you know, as in higher than this time last year. So it looks to me as though in the lamb space at least that demand's still strong overseas, but... Um, we're seeing higher volumes than we've seen in the last few years, so that's kind of counteracting that strong demand, and it's, it's partially why we're seeing some of these prices slip a little bit. You were also having a look at the Wagga market yesterday for sheep. What did did that surprise you at all? The numbers there? Uh, really big numbers for sheep. So uh, it was about forty thousand head of sheep came through Wagga, and that's been steadily increasing in the last three weeks to get to those levels. And with that big influx at Wagga, that's really pushed the east coast. If you look at the east coast sheep numbers in terms of yardings, uh, we saw one hundred twenty-five thousand head of sheep uh, across the whole of the east coast. 
Um, and if you go back to this time last year or this week last year, the numbers were around 77,000 heads. So you're talking a 62% increase in the number of sheep being presented at the yard, you know, the sale yard compared to this time last year. So it's just, it's just too much supply for, for, for the demand to soak up. And, and if you look at mutton exports, mutton exports have actually been booming since the start of the year, particularly in China. But it, it just appears as, as the, you know, too many, too many numbers at the moment for, 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 um, for the market to absorb. Yeah, the mutton, the mutton market really, the price has gone down quite sharply. That's right. Yeah. So if you look at the you know, across the, the land complex, like yeah, prices fell across most of the you know kind of sections over the last week. But since the start of the year, mutton's been, or it actually the the kind of rot set in last year because last year um, quarter quarter four of twenty twenty two, Chinese demand trailed off quite a bit, and that that started the decline in pricing, and and the pricing stayed kind of low this year. We saw a little bit of an uptick. Um, through February, but but the last week or so, it's kind of returned back to that you know three thirty cents a kilo carcass weight for mutton, which is nearly three hundred cents below this time last year. So yeah, it has it has taken some of the steam out of that particular market. And I just think, like I said, it's too much um, too much supply. Even though the demand from China has been like, if you look at January and February, they were the two strongest months for flows of mutton to China on record. Um, um, so they're absorbing quite a bit since the start of this year, but there's just too much coming. Industry analyst from Episode 3, Matt Dalgleish, who also told Jane McNaughton that it's probably take a few months before the meat gets any cheaper in the supermarkets, which is uh, something we've had a few texts from uh, producers saying uh, they've noticed the price in supermarkets haven't come down at all from those uh, stratospheric heights. And uh, people saying it doesn't seem fair. And also, uh, we've got some questions about the bees. Of course, those nine new cases of varroa mite, devastating disease, uh, causes all sorts of havoc with hives. If it uh, gets into a hive and uh, quite horrendous the damage they do, uh, well, Swaggy in the Illawarra says, does that mean does the killing wild bees mean actually killing native bees? I'm not sure whether or not they're affected by the, the poisons. I would imagine they are, but uh, we'll need to check that out, Swaggy, and find out. Uh, whether or not they're susceptible to those poisons used in eradication. it's uh, So that's a question on notice. It's 29 minutes to one here on the country. Uh, let's uh, get some news headlines now. Adam Storey, good afternoon. Afternoon, Mikey. You probably heard we're getting into the nuclear submarine business. Yes. Yes, I, yes, I did hear a little bit about that <laughs> A little that bit today, about that. This morning. <laughs> and yesterday and yeah, probably yeah. a bit on Friday and over the and weekend. How yeah. many trillion dollars? Billion something dollars like that. Something. <laughs> anyway, uh, the Premier has uh, made a bid for Port Kembla uh, to be the uh, base of the nuclear submarines when we get around to building them. Uh, it's one of three sites uh, being considered by the Commonwealth. However, New South Wales Ports has raised concerns that... Uh, Port Kembla could not accommodate both a nuclear submarine base and existing uh, commercial operations. Um, so then, it's, you know, what do you do? Do you get rid of the commercial operations and... Or build a bigger port. Or build a bigger port, yeah. <laughs> if you can, get out the concrete. Uh, speaking of, uh, well... Did they fire this from a submarine? Yes, they did. <laughs> the North has fired two short-range ballistic missiles from a submarine off its east coast this morning. Right. This is because uh, the uh, South and US are conducting those military drills, which are the uh, largest in years. Uh, back on the uh, campaign trail, uh, the Premier uh, has backed the disendorsement of the candidate for Wyong, Matthew Squires, over homophobic and Islamophobic comments he's uh, made online. 
Uh, the Liberal Party says the comments were offensive and unacceptable, and Dominic Perrottet was the right decision for him to be removed from the ticket. Uh, meanwhile, Labor says it will offer scholarships to early childcare workers if it wins the election, so the sector uh, has the opportunity to upskill. It's promising 35,000 scholarships and says a fund will be established to allow for professional development leave. Uh, retailers are reporting a rise in shoplifting. Uh, they're saying that inflation and interest rates, of course, the spike as uh, more people are struggling to uh, meet uh, their uh, daily living expenses. The old five-finger discount. The old five-finger discount, yeah. And um, there's been uh, more concern on the stock markets in uh, Europe over the collapse of that US Silicon Valley bank. Uh, now, the exposure to Australia is very low, apparently, uh, but there are a lot of investors in Europe. However, people have been allowed to uh, withdraw their money, I think, as of today. Uh, but they still have the jitters, and uh, yeah, some stock markets dropped around 12%. Uh, so even though the worst collapse since the financial crisis. And even though Joe Biden said that they would guarantee all deposit holders, mm. and, they was, and uh, that in the running the banks, that always seemed to be the issue, but that still doesn't seem to have calmed the markets. No, not at all. Mm. No. However, Wall Street did calm uh, overnight. Mm. So Still uh, down, but not... Still down, not, but not, yeah. Not down as much. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, mm. the, yeah, the panic had... I think the, the, well, they, the cont- they're worried about bank contagion. So that's yeah, a, that's, that's the, and I think because this Silicon Valley bank it was a major lender to startups, right? So and then they're, yeah. they're worried that that will flow the the fund, yeah. slow slow the funds, slow, flow, slow to, the funds, yeah, yeah. To, to to the new businesses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well now we got it. Now we understand. Thanks for that, Adam. Glad to be. Able to <laughs> I have no idea Tech what I'm startup. talking about. <laughs> The expert on everything. Adam's story there with the news headlines. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, 25 minutes to one. Someone who's an expert on the weather is uh, Jordan Natara. Good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon, Michael. So what's ha- so we've seen more benign conditions in the fire grounds and those floods have dissipated and that rainfall, no, not so much rainfall. So um, what's, what's, what's likely to happen over the next few days? Yeah, so we are still in quite a moist easterly airstream, so we do have the risk that we could see some severe storms as we head further into the day around parts near Narrabri up towards Broken, uh, sorry, not Broken Hill, Lightning Ridge. Um, well, basically, that's all due to a trough that's through inland areas and, again, that high moisture and slow steering of storms. We've seen some moderate falls already around parts of the coastline, though, again, that is very much right near the coastal fringe and most of the rainfall through inland areas have been below 10 millimetres since 9am. So that's going to continue as we go into Wednesday, particularly around parts of the northeastern coastal fringe and ranges where we're having a look at potential more severe storms as we particularly go through those afternoon hours of Wednesday. But from there on, warm temperatures building from Thursday, warm, dry, westerly winds broadly across the state with temperatures rising well above average from Thursday all the way into the next new week. And at this stage, we'll look basically set to see another fire weather warning being issued for Thursday in particular, but maybe potentially even into Friday as well with those combinations of warm, dry uh, and, again, warm westerly winds. So heading up in temperature or are we going to see more fire danger warnings, things like that? Absolutely. So particularly at the moment, the first day we're going to be looking at that is from Thursday. Potential widespread heatwave warnings as well across the state. So we start to see temperatures edging 2 to 10 degrees above average from Thursday across the state, particularly peaking as we head over the weekend. Saturday at this stage looks to be around the warmest day over the next seven-day forecast. And even still, obviously, as we go to that longer-term picture, we are looking at a sustained period of warm temperatures. So the risk of uh, sustained heatwave conditions, and that's, again, 
again going to be drying out fuels is one that we're going to be looking out for as we go across this next week. And you mentioned heat. What sort of heat are we talking, uh, you know, high 30s into the 40s? Yeah, so particularly as we get towards this coming weekend, we're looking at those temperatures edging well into the 40-degree range through inland areas, nearly up towards the mid to high 30s around parts of the coast as well. And that's going to continue to sit at those, again, near 40-degree temperatures through inland parts west of the divide from around Thursday into Friday and then continue as we go across into the new week as well for some locations. But broadly, as I say, around 8 or so degrees above average west of the divide and, again, a bit more hit or miss around parts of the coast depending on how sea breezes behave. But still notable that we will be seeing many areas starting to be affected by this heat and, again, the fire grounds as well are likely to be one that we're going to have to continue to monitor for the trends that we are going to be seeing some fire weather warnings being issued over this period. Yeah, they did get a tiny little bit of rain on that hill end fire, but imagine that uh, they're worried about that with the conditions coming up and into the, into the high 30s there, so that might ramp up that fire again. Yeah, there's definitely always a risk. Obviously, we are moving out of summer, but that still doesn't mean, obviously, that we are out of the woods um, for potential for elevator fires, fire dangers, that is. Um, and again, unfortunately, the outlook is for quite warm temperatures over the next few days. And as I say, particularly for Thursday with those stronger westerly winds, that's going to be one that's going to be there that will be, um, I guess, a challenge for if we do see some fires flare up. Jordan, uh, yes, we'll be watching that with interest, uh, no doubt, not uh, not not the sort of temperatures we want to see when we have seen uh, so many fires around the place. Um, but uh, thanks for that. Catch you later. It's 22 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, Aussie, an Aussie helper's barbecue is being held today to recognise the assistance that many people provided during, during uh, those flood disasters that we've seen uh, in recent times, uh, that barbecue is on at the Mwollombar sale yards as we speak. And we've managed to convince Kim Honan to put down the sausage sandwich and join us. <laughs> Good afternoon, Kim. You did Good put afternoon. down the sausage sandwich. You can have one later. Uh, I haven't got to the sausage sandwiches right. yet, but You've we're actually busy. at the <laughs> we're actually at the branding rail, which is the bar set up at uh, Mwollombar oh, right. Showground well, across right from the sale yards. Just <laughs> But yeah, um, last year, a year ago, more than a year ago now, but where we were standing, uh, the flood water went way over this building and even reached up into the second uh, floor of uh, buildings here at the Moolumbar Showground. It really was mm. a disaster, a catastrophe, as we've been reporting on for, for the last year. But a special barbecue put on by Aussie helpers who have been really on the ground here for the, for the last year, not just in the, the initial response, but as part of the recovery process as well. They're back this week connecting with farmers. They feel that's pretty important to do. And uh, the Chief Executive Officer, Tash Cox, joins me this afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So how soon was Aussie Helpers on the ground here in the Tweed Valley? Uh, we arrived here in Mwollombar three weeks after uh, the flooding. We had uh, uh, lots of requests for assistance. We originally had to meet uh, with 30 farmers, but we ended up seeing over 50 farmers that week. Um, it was it was a really sad week for us. Uh, lots of emotion and lots of hugs going around, but really happy to report we were able to give um, $380,000 worth of assistance just in those four days we were here, and that support's continued over the last 12 months. And what sort of assistance? We're talking about hampers, food fencing, everything that uh, farmers were really in need of then and in the months following? 
Yeah, absolutely all of those things. We we came down with food hampers and dog food and pamper packs, all those little things that people were missing um, that lost everything. But also the friendly ear, we had visa and fuel cards, but we also did set up with a local company here, McGregor Gourlay, um, a stock agent, and they um, were able to help us give $5,000 worth of fencing equipment to each of the farmers in the area to just help get back on their feet. So, so all up over the last year, how many farmers in the Mwoolumba Tweed area do you think that Aussie helpers have helped out? Oh, it'll be over 50 uh, and that number always grows um, but you know we're here not just once we're here for the backup so if people need our help you know they can call us on the phone anytime. Fantastic thanks so much Tash. Thank you. That is Tash Cox the CEO of uh um, Aussie helpers here at the Mwoolumba showgrounds uh, for the special barbecue and joining me now is Tim and Anna Gilliland who run beef cattle at Doon Doon at the top of the Tweed catchment and uh, fair to say that your property suffered extensive damage uh, more than a year ago and you had quite uh, the amount of rain in a 12-hour period but not just overnight in the, in the week leading up to it. Uh, yeah, there was, um, it was just non-stop rain. It just kept coming and coming. Um, and then we got that huge big downpour overnight that really devastated the, our farm. So severely impacted us, yep. So you had 698 millimetres in 12 hours in the, and in the week leading up to it, 1,300 millimetres. Tim, what sort of damage did that do to the property? Well, mainly landslides come, come out of the National Park big 30 acre landslide come from up the back and just brought trees, debris, rocks took all the bridges out, just took everything out on the farm and ended up on the flats. Basically yeah, we couldn't even get out for days yeah. And 12 months on, you're still nowhere near recovery, you say that you had a dozer on, on the farm for like, you know, seven, seven months, which is extraordinary Yeah, he's there for seven months, he he um, he come and went a few times, but he was mainly working there all the time. Um, now the fencing contractor started last week, so we're making headway. We're getting there. We've had a lot of help, and yeah, we really appreciate the help from Aussie Helpers. And what sort of help did they give you in the initial weeks after the the flood? You know, devastated your property. Um, just knowing that they were there um, was just such a relief. Uh, we needed um, electric fences because all our fences had gone. We were able to go in there and get what we needed there and then. They had this, everything ready and available. Uh, it was just such a, a tremendous feeling knowing that they were there. It was, um, it was brilliant. It helped lift us, get our heads up. And was that the only help that you were, were offered? Was anything coming from any other sort of government, charity organisations? Um, we had a lot of help um, because we were isolated for 10 days, um, no power for five. The council came out as soon as they could. Um, we got power on eventually. Um, and the support from the SES, Rural Fire Service um, and the council was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, the Rural Assistance Authority, we've been able to get funding through there, um, which has helped us back on, back on track to get back to where we want to be or were. And given the amount of rainfall that you were seeing on your property in, in the lead up to the 28th of February, you must have had some idea the amount of damage it was going to do, not just to your farm, but the farmers downstream of you and the, and the townships. Well, that's what we sort of, we could see it because we're right at the top end of the catchment and we could see how much rain was coming and it only runs off downstream. Um, so we sort of put out as much as we could to people. We knew how much rain was coming. Um, 
and yeah, it just resulted in what happened at the end. And you think that you, you lost eight head of cattle, but you don't really know, do you? I can't really know. It took us months to be able to muster them because we had no fences. Um, we couldn't access the back of our farm for a long time due to being so wet and our crossing's gone, slips taken out, everything. Um, so when we were able to get our numbers, our cattle in, there was eight that it couldn't be accounted for. So I can't really say whether it was flood or slips or, or what happened. So... But. Tim and Anna Gilliland uh, from Doon Doon, thank you so much for joining us on the Country Hour today. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. And not just, not far out of uh, Moolumba here, um, Jennifer McDonald uh, farms with her, her parents, uh, Pat and Trisha at uh, Canary Jerseys. Yeah. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Kim. So a year on, we, we you know, marked the flood uh, anniversary a, a couple of weeks ago. How, how tough was that for you? It's, the, you know, last year the biggest flood that your family farm has ever seen it was as you said wiped everything out yeah it took out every pump and motor but as far as the anniversary goes um every day since has been the anniversary of the flood trying to recover trying to build back stuff um buy stuff everything was ruined like we didn't even have a gurney because it went underwater in the, under the house we couldn't clean anything we uh, relied on people to come and, and help and do stuff. I lost most of the tools <laughs> to, to go and fix stuff. So you, you couldn't go and fix anything because you didn't have a tool to go and do it. Um, as far as the cattle went, um, they suffered a, 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 in the initial time. Um, we lost 13 head. Some, most of those drowned. Um, four with uh, like pneumonia-related uh, incidents. Um, <clears throat> our flood was a bit different to the Gillylands because they're up in the upper reaches. And we're on the flats. Um, we didn't lose many fences, but we had a lot of pasture damage, and that's still ongoing because we've had uh, well. And the the worst part was the inundation for months after. Um, so that allowed, uh, killed off a lot of grass, allowed a lot of weeds to come, uh, and they're still there. I'm preparing paddocks now, soon to be planted for winter feed. Um, yeah, so it's just been an ongoing battle for the whole year. And what would you have done without Aussie helpers and their truckloads of hay that arrived at your property? Yeah, they, they were fantastic. <clears throat> they really were. Um, it's an awesome sight to see a truck coming down the road loaded to the gills with hay when your cows are hungry. Like, um, and to just touch it and then... Oh, and uh, We didn't get the whole truck load. It was farmed off to different pla- people. We, everybody needed it, you know. So um, it was a great relief. There was um, some, some other um, organisations that helped us a great deal. Dairy Australia were very good sending... Uh, consultants and vets and um, other experts in financials things to help with grants and that sort of thing and they were great Uh, Rapid Relief Team were very good they sent some excellent hay Um, so we did receive some hay that was um, absolute rubbish from another charity Um, we got absolutely dudded and that was a huge insult Um, but I won't name names (laughs) Uh, and that was that was a real kick in the guts. Getting getting rubbish hay um, when when the cattle wanted something to eat, and it was worthless. It wasn't even it was only good for mulch. That was it. Um, 
But there has been some extraordinary efforts by a lot of people, friends, family, and other people we just didn't even know. They just rocked up and say, what do you want us to do? Oh, right, OK. <laughs> um, I've got a, uh, my neighbour's gurney's there in the shed that needs cleaning out, and they went for the whole day. Um, uh, you know, stuff like that. People would rock up randomly with cow food, people food, <laughs> in the first few weeks. Um, yeah, so it was great. Jennifer, good to see you here at the Aussie Helpers Thank Barbecue. You. Hopefully we can have a snag together soon. Yes, it's a, it's a great day. There's a lot, lot of farmers here I've, um, I haven't seen for a long time and some I don't even know. So. That is Jennifer McDonald, a dairy farmer from Canary Jerseys, uh, just outside Mwoolumba here, Michael, and um, I am going to go s- grab that snag now, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah. Is that okay? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's just uh, stark, though, that their devastation from those March 2022 floods is still very raw, though, isn't it? Oh, it, it is still very raw, and as we heard today, still a long way to go mm. before the recovery is complete on years, really. Yeah, absolutely, Kim. Yeah. Thanks for that. Appreciate it. Thanks. Kim Honan there at the Moolambar Sale Yards for that Aussie Helpers Barbecue. It's coming up to 11 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, the federal government has assured those in the native forestry sector that they can still access a $15 billion fund for manufacturing. That's despite Labor signing a deal with the Greens to exclude new coal, gas or native forestry projects from receiving money from the National Reconstruction Fund, which is designed to support manufacturing and emerging industries. The Assistant Minister for Trade and Manufacturing, Tim Ayres, told Tina Quinn that the fund was never intended to be used for any any form of primary production like harvesting hardwood timber, but it will still provide opportunities for businesses involved in manufacturing food and fibre, fishing and forestry. Every region in Australia has an opportunity to be a beneficiary of this nation-building investment. This is, this is where the manufacturing opportunities are. The Mid-North Coast uh, has a very strong manufacturing capability, but the future decisions of this fund are going to be based upon the merits of different project proponents. It is going to depend on whether they are bringing technology to the market that can be commercialised in Australia to create Australian exports uh, and to create high-quality Australian jobs. Hardwood timber contributes $1.8 billion to our economy and it employs many thousands of people. Why exclude it from the fund? Well, there, there, there was never any prospect that this fund, which is a fund that is about rebuilding Australian manufacturing, was, was ever going to be engaged in timber harvesting or coal mining uh, or gas extraction, uh, or any form of primary production at all, including including agriculture. This fund is about manufacturing. Industry argues, though, that without proper financial support, this makes it more difficult for, for the hardwood timber sector, for instance, to make the requisite changes that are needed for their industry to become more sustainable. Well, the, the, the hardwood timber industry uh, is, is undergoing a very significant transformation. This program, the National Reconstruction Fund, though, is about uh, making sure that there are manufacturing destinations for this product to go to that will lift it up the value chain. That means that there are manufacturing opportunities in country towns. Now, the fate of, uh, you know, the future of the ag sector 
uh, forestry, the mining industry. You know, these industries have got very strong futures in Australia. Right, but you're excluding them from the fund. So for those in the hardwood timber industry, are you able to explain how this will actually help to assist them? Well, it means it will be manufacturing wood products. Absolutely. This, this fund will, uh, will engage in uh, food and fibre in particular in the processing of agricultural products. It just will not and, and never was envisaged that it would be engaged in timber harvesting or the direct extraction of products uh, or in primary production of any kind. Uh, this, is, this is a secondary processing manufacturing fund. Tim Ayres is the Assistant Minister for Trade and Manufacturing, speaking there to Tina Quinn. And before we go to markets, a mysterious duck mortality event in the state's west was likely caused by a low pathogenic variant of avian influenza, says the LLS's district vet. Around 50 ducks were reported dead in Cobar last month. And Yi Lim at Cobar LLS says that the variant is not of concern to humans or livestock. Influenza viruses in birds can occur in a certain proportion of the wild bird population within Australia, um, and they continuously circulate in some population of wild birds in Australia. And what would be the danger if we did have the highly pathogenic version? Yeah, so uh, obviously that would have a huge impact on our poultry industries. Uh, as we've seen overseas, uh, this has affected uh, food prices, um, you know, the prices of eggs, chicken, would. Um, have have gone up in countries which are battling uh, outbreaks of highly pathogenic avian influenza and certainly, yeah, this would add to cost of living pressures uh, but also uh, in terms of our agricultural uh, reputation as well. Uh, Australia um, is one of only a few countries with that that currently do not have the highly pathogenic strains. That has outbreaks have occurred in the past, however, they've always been contained and successfully eradicated. Talking about that uh, that outbreak, there was a district vet at Cobar LLS, uh, Ziyi Lim. It's uh, time for markets now. Let's go to Wodonga. Good afternoon. Just over a 1,000 cattle sold to most of the usual buying group. Quality continues to be mixed throughout the offering. Trade cattle numbers did increase and there was some excellent grain-assisted cattle on offer. Fillers are in short supply and heavy export steer numbers decline notably. And in the offering, there was a third made up of cows. The market sold to significantly cheaper trends over all classes. Vealers slipped 30 to 50 cents. The lighter weight veal, $2 to 280. The balance of the veal, $3 to 420. Trade steers sold 60 cents cheaper, $3 to 390. Feeder steers fell back 12 cents, $3 to 340 for the medium weights. Trade heifers sold 10 cents cheaper, 280 to 410. Heavy grown steers and bullocks were back 18 cents, 270. To 350. Cows suffered another price correction of 15 to 20 cents. Heavy cows 252 to 282. The middle run 210 to 260. And bulls topped at 308. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. Let's go to Forbes Sheep and Lambs. Numbers halved this sale with agents yarding 16,700 head. There was 9,850 lambs panned and quality was very mixed with a large percentage of plain lambs offered along with a few better types. Most of the usual bars are present competing in a cheaper market. 
Trade weight lambs slipped $15 and more on the secondary types. Lambs 20 to 24 kilos sold from 120 to 185. Heavy lambs to 26 kilos were also back 15 to range from 179 to 214. The extra heavies followed the same trend and sold from 189 to 256. Light restocker lambs sold to 125 and heavy hoggets ranged from 90 to $140 a head. There was 5,300 mutton penned with quality similar to previous sales. Merinos made up the majority and sold from 70 to 143. Crossbreds receiving from $50 to 145. Dorper ewes reaching 135. And Merino weathers sold from 70 to $136 a head. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. Invero Cattle now. Good afternoon. The combination of useful falls of rain across the general supply area, along with the recent reduction in prices, reduced the number of stock at the Inverell cattle sale to 480. The overall yarding was mixed with yielding steers and heifers dominating the penning, with prices improving for the heavy feeder lines. Only a handful of bullocks and heavy heifers penned, selling one to five better, with lightweight and heavy cows of processors improving by 40 cents a kilo in places. Lightweight yielding steers to restock is made to 420 to average 414. Yielding steers in the 330 to 400 range to feed improved by 40, average 370 and sold to 394, with the heavy yielding steers to feed up by 4, selling to 386 and averaging 354. Let's go to uh, uh, Carcor Cattle, David Monk. Numbers remain similar with the yarding of 2137. It was a better quality yarding with good numbers of young cattle to suit the feeders, along with odd lots to suit the processes. There were fair numbers of ground steers and heifers, and there were 570 cows yarded. Young cattle of the trade were around firm, with prime vealers selling to 451. Prime yearlings sold from 320 to 435. Feeder steers and heifers were 4 to 9 cents cheaper, with the feeder steers selling from 300 to 395, while feeder heifers sold from 280 to 350. Young cattle of the restockers were also cheaper, with the young steers selling to 419 and the young heifers 336. Ground steers were around firm, while the ground heifers were 12 cents cheaper. Prime ground steers sold from 312 to 368, while the prime ground heifers sold from 310 to 356. Cows were 6 cents cheaper, with the 2 and 3 scores selling from 150 to 272. Prime heavyweight cows sold from 250 to 300 to average 278. Uh, heavy bulls sold to 299. This is David Monk at CTLX for MLA. To Canada cattle now. Good afternoon. Only a small reduction in numbers despite good rain. 2,265 penned. Vealers and yearlings well supplied along with cows. Quality was generally good, not as mixed. Reduced feedlot competition while the regular processes operated. Vealer steers to restockers sold firm to slightly dearer, 384 to 496 cents a kilo. Heifers with a weight increase were cheaper, reaching 378 cents. Improved quality created strong gains for medium weight yearling steers, 295 to 4 32. The heavy feeders 310 to 390 to show a cheaper trend. Healing heifers met less competition. Lightweights 288 to 354. Medium and heavyweights 270 to 340 cents were up to 20 cents easier. Heavy ground steers to process in limited supply 290 to 324 remaining firm. A slightly cheaper cow market with medium weight 2 and 3 scores 200 to 252. The heavyweight 3 and 4 scores 235 to 280 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in and Scone cattle now. Good afternoon. Scone numbers were static at 854, mostly good quality cattle. Weaners with weight and quality resulted in a dearer market. An extra feedlot operator was present to operate on heavier steers and heifers. Cows saw heavier weights and an ex- extra exporter was present. Regular buyers attended. Weaner steers to restocker saw steers considerably dearer, 300 to 476. Heifers similar, 318 to 380. Medium steers to background were dearer, 300 to 400. 
Uh, however, feed is slightly cheaper, 334 to 364. Lightweight heifer sold to significantly dearer trends to backgrounders, 300 to 380. The heavier drafts also dearer, 316 to 336. Yearling steers uh, feed to feed, firm, 330 to 346. Heifers, 270 to 304. Stephen Adams, MLA at Scone. You've been listening to The Country Hour. It's coming up to news time.